Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, everyone. I'm Larry English. I'm president and co-founder of Centric Consulting. We're an 1,100-person consulting organization in the U.S. and India, and we have been remote for 20 years, which led me to write this book called Office Optional, How to Build a Connected Culture with Virtual Teams that came out right when the pandemic happened. And as you can imagine, I've been very busy talking about it since then. Well, look, Larry, thank you. It's a real honor having you on the series. I've had a number of really great conversations with you. And uh, we also had a clubhouse session with some other CEOs who really found it very useful talking about your book, Office Optional, uh, about their virtual teams and what goes on. And some people have all said, oh, you know, we're going to go back to how it was. And many are beginning to realize there's no going back to anything. It's, it's, it's the, it's, it's a, we're in the era of someone calls it of the pandemic in uh, the Lancet, very good article, and that we're gonna look at the difference between AI and DNA, and it's moving towards the AI world and, and much more virtual. But it was Jeff Nishwitz, who I like a lot, who uh, really was very complimentary about you on his podcast. And I'm very grateful to Jeff, who's become a, a friend to both of us. Um, but let's go back to early life, Larry, and, um, you know, just just uh, tell us a bit, and, and we'll sort of bring that back to now your, your current job. But when you were just a wee lad, as the Scots would say, who was it that influenced you that shaped the kind of person you are today? Tell us a bit about your sort of your journey from early life and some of the influential forces on you. Sure, certainly. Um, my my parents are wonderful. They live ten minutes away, and their their value system. Uh, really was the basis for everything that I am. And um, I am so uh, grateful to them. You, you, you and I talked a little bit earlier um, uh, before we recorded this, and we talked about some of those things. Nobody escapes their childhood unscathed. And uh, certainly for me, I think what was transformative for me is right around those middle school years, right around 11 or 12 years old, was really bullied um, badly. And um, out of that, what came out of it for me is it actually lit a fire in me. And um, what that meant was I was like, you know, I'm going to show these guys. <laughs> um, and it made me into the person that I am today, which is, um, I think, part of the driver, which led me to, you know, start and grow this company as an example. Yeah, well, hey, that is so interesting. There's this thing about bullying. I remember when I was at sixth form, I went away to an army boarding school called Welbeck College. And I met a group of people, but there's this little cohort of uh, Martin, let's not mention their names, Terry and Mark. I think I'll keep them anonymous because they should be ashamed of their behavior. But they thought it would be cool to bully other people and they they picked on me. One of them said, because I was too nice. I see in you, you know, if I was nicer, I'd be like you. And that's why you're giving me a hard time. And they would sort of make mocking comments about my voice or things like that, or 
stuff I said, they'd shout it down corridors when I wasn't there. I could just hear this. They used to say, I, I'd said something about somebody and then but I said, but he is a good bloke. And, and, and so this little became their catchphrase, good bloke, good bloke, he's a good bloke. And you sort of hear it echoing down these different corridors from somewhere. And it made me cringe and want to hide and, and keep away from people. And, and, and I, I do find that, that a number of people who've been bullied, it really does shape them and determine to prove these people wrong. Or what was a very small world, it was years later when I was with the Scots Guards, I was up a mountain uh, Mount Trudos running a skiing centre for the Scots Guards and the whole of the island of Cyprus. It was such a fun job. We'd water ski in the morning, drive up in a Suzuki Jeep and snow ski in the afternoon. I mean, couldn't get better than that. My job, they paid me to do that with Austrian ski skiing instructors. It was fabulous. And this guy turned up. He was in charge of the trucks and all the, the lorry drivers. And I could have really had a go at him. But actually, I was just I just was charming to him. And, and, and at the very end, and he made no mention of it, but the very end of it, I said, Mark, just remember, you know, the impact you have on people, because that was really unpleasant, but, but you've turned out to be a great guy now, so just learn from it. And uh, so what did you learn from, from your bullying and how did, you know, as well as trying to prove them wrong, how has it shaped the leader you are today? So one of the, lessons learned that I've from that I set out when we built the company is nice guys can finish first. You can be kind in business and uh, be successful. And the vast majority of people um, want to work with honest and kind people. And so building our company around that value system has been um, exciting to me that we're able to demonstrate that you can be successful in business and be a kind person. Mm. No, that's really lovely. And and then going on through life, who who are the mentors and the coaches to you that that gave you the values? I mean, clearly the parents gave you values, but but who else was it? And teachers or different business colleagues? Where did you get some of the values that have made you the leader that people admire and and find inspiring in a very humble and and uh, human way? So a couple of ways to think about it. One, I've always heard that companies tend to take on the personality of their founders. And so, you know, much later on after we were established, you know, you'd hear your reputation, brand, company brand reputation in the marketplace. And when I would hear people say, I hear just, you know, how nice your people are, how nice everybody in your company is, how kind you are, how you um, have built that value system. Uh, it has been, uh, it has been so important to me. I'm, I've been so excited about um, that. That value system has been proven that it can work in the marketplace. Um, and the other area to the other way to think about this um, for me is, I think I mentioned this to you. Is I was sitting around and realized that um, what's uh, I spend so much of my life doing business. Um, why don't I do the same strategy that I do for business in my personal life and have actually developed a template um, that I've used uh, for myself and with my colleagues. And it has been really transformational. 
Um, and so what I found is it allowed me to think through what are the key things that I really value and how do I keep it in front of me so that I make sure I'm living that and that I have this plan in front of me because life is short. And so if you don't plan it out, it's okay wherever you end up. I, I wanted to make sure I got the things done that I wanted to get uh, done. And so, you know, just to give you an example of things that are on my personal, you know, mission statement, um, I try to make magical moments uh, with my wife and loved ones. Um, I try to make an impact and value every human interaction. I cherish and invest in my friendships. I realize that I need to have some creative outlet almost on a daily basis because that's what makes me happy. And so by writing all this stuff down, I keep it in front of me and I make sure I stay on that course as I'm living my life. Uh, it's, it's a really great way of doing it. And I think too often um, we find that as humans, we, we have one way at work and another way at home. Uh, and that lack of congruity um, creates the, the incomplete or the incomplete. <laughs> the incomplete leader, the, so you're coherent or you're incoherent, you know, you're connected or not. And, and I think, I think it's really important that, that we, we make sure we're, we're the, the same person wherever we are. And I think all too often you, you get this people acting apart and it doesn't pay off. I don't know what your view is on that. I've learned uh, transparency. We've tried to teach everybody in our company. It's just a much easier way to live your life. Um, and so we try to train everybody and I try to live my life uh, transparently as well. Mm, yeah, it's, it's um, I like the work of um, Stephen Kuhn uh, and his colleague in uh, their book, uh, Unleash Your Humble Alpha. They talk about hit, honesty, integrity, and transparency being very important parts of an alpha male or an alpha female. That, that you have that confidence, but you also have that uh, transparency. So here you are now, you, you've, you're the president and uh, of Centric Consulting, um, founded it some 20 years ago with yourself and I think two others, was that right? Correct. Yeah, and, and then you wrote this book. Uh, little were you to know that a pandemic was gonna hit and the book was coming out just as we were all locked down and trying to work out this new thing called virtual teams, but you've been doing it for 20 years. So, so if you would explain to somebody listening um, about the, the essence of the book and the sort of, I don't know, the top sort of three or four things that it, it sort of covers, what, what would it be? Because I, I, I would recommend it to everybody listening and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. But what, just give us a little bit of a synopsis about it. Let me give you a tiny bit of background of why, why I ended up writing it before the pandemic. So we were on this journey to create a consulting company that had not existed before. We were disillusioned with all the consulting companies that we had worked for. There were some good parts and bad parts about each of them. And we're like, why can't we create one where everybody's happy <laughs> and there's not politics and we don't kill people for profit? And we're like, wait, we can do that. And so we started that and we had a list of values that we wanted to do and certainly employee happiness was one of them. And one of the ideas, and this is 20 years ago, that we thought would make our employees happier is it, and they could have better work-life balance, uh, balance in their life, was to be remote. And so that was one of the ideas that we started with, and it stuck, and it worked. And now, along the way, as you can imagine, 20 years ago, the tools and the technology did not exist as well. And there were a lot of people that just were couldn't get their head around the concept. And so 
we have 20 years of figuring out lots of mistakes through lots of mistakes, what not to do. And we'd figured out, and I kept having to explain to executives, they're like, wait, you've won all, all of these awards for you know, best place to work and having this great culture and you're remote. I don't, you don't have an office space where people go into, I don't understand how that could possibly ever work. So I got tired of explaining it um, over and over again. The other trend that you could start to see was the technology was getting better and more customers were getting comfortable with remote work. And so we thought that 10, 15 years out, there was gonna be this you know, remote work explosion. And so the idea was to get ahead of that curve and, and get the book out there. And then the pandemic happened. And of course it forced everybody to do this grand experiment. And I think business is always before like, you can't possibly do this, it would never work. You'll kill culture, you won't be able to innovate. Um, you can't see people, I can't trust them. Um, and of course, now everybody's learned through the pandemic that this does work. And all the employees that have experienced are like, I, I don't want to go back. And so I think we're going to see mass adoption of this. And so to your original question of you know what's in the book, I took the lens, I looked around, there was some written about how to do remote work, uh, but for a company and how to structure it, but there was very, very, almost nothing written on how to be remote and have a great culture. So the book is meant to be a how-to guide for anybody that wants to have a remote or a hybrid workforce and wants to learn, how do I do that? But how do I stay connected with my people? How do I you know, build a, a great culture when I don't see everybody every day? Yeah, it's, I think it's brilliant. I, I find it very easy to read. And, and what do you think is going to be the, the, the positive upsides when more people do that? And I think a lot more people will. Uh, and what's the downside? I mean, you know, surely there'll be a, a surplus of office space because they're not going to need so many offices. Isn't there going to be a bit of a glut of the property market? I mean, what, what, what's the plus and then what's perhaps the, the, the worrying changes for some people? So there's a, there's a lot, I think, on the plus com, column and a few on the downside. So the downside, obviously, is if you're in commercial real estate, um, you're probably going to be sad <laughs> um, because I do think uh, most of the companies we're working in, these are really big companies, are trying to figure out how to get rid of their office space, um, reduce it by 50% or more. Um, the numbers I see in New York and San Francisco of occupancy rate is just, it's plummeted. And I don't think it's going to come back and you'll see those spaces um, reconfigured. So let's talk about the positives from both work, but then there's also some <clears throat> impact that's gonna cause on cities um, as well <clears throat> and how we live. So from an employee perspective, I think you're gonna have happier employees. I think you're gonna do less commute time. Um, so you're gonna see you know, what Microsoft is calling the great disruption in work. Uh, you're gonna see most companies uh, adopt this. And so companies are going to learn to work this way. And I think they're gonna be more productive but it is going to require them to change how they think. So there are implications like, hey, now I don't have to hire everybody in a 30 mile radius. I can hire any people from around the world. Um, but it's also a threat um, where now people can hire, <laughs> other companies can hire all of your people as well. And we're starting to see that, that very trend. I think you're going to see, um, there was the gig in the freelance uh, marketplace it was starting to trend up. And now I think it's just going to be an explosion of it. And so you're going to see a lot more people that choose that lifestyle. And you're going to see organizations have to get much better at accommodating and working with a gig or a freelance 
workforce. You know, a quick example is one of our guys that came to us and said, I want to work six months and then I'm going to go for three months in my RV and then I'm going to come back and work again. Can you design a comp package around that for me? And we're like, of course, absolutely, because we want to keep you. And I think that's an example of what companies are going to have to do. Now, the I think also the positive implications are you're going to see people, you're going to see probably the makeup of cities change a little bit. So you're not going to have everybody commuting downtown all the time. It's better for the environment. Uh, you're going to see, there's a lot of debate around this right now, but you'll probably see uh, more um, uh, people going to move to the city, especially the younger generation uh, that, and some of the city recreating some of those functions of the office that they don't necessarily get. And so you could see that, you know, just the structure of how things change. Um, it, there's kind of this idea of death of distance and so you're going to see people, they can live anywhere now, and uh, that might, move, you know, a migration to the suburbs or other locations. So I think there's a lot of implications on society as well that we're just starting to see now. Yeah. So, so do you think the, um, the extra 50% of capacity that they have in these commercial offices, they would perhaps be reused as, as housing and things so people could live in the cities, and, but, but that hopefully they wouldn't be so ridiculously expensive? because they're desperate to make use of these spaces. So the young would want to be with the vibrance of the city and the clubs and stuff like that. So I don't think we'd see tumbleweed blowing down the middle of the city of London and New York, but just it would be used in different ways. That's exactly right. And you're, you're picking up on what people uh, talk about all the time is, so there was remote work during the pandemic, which is not what remote work is truly like because there was all this added stress of, the pandemic, uh, but the important thing that we've always built into being remote is you still need to, you need human contact. It's, <laughs> we're human social animals. And so you've got to build that into your design, whatever you're doing for your company. But that's also why you're going to see people want to be, you know, in the city, especially the younger generation, because they want that human contact and interaction. They don't want to be a Zoom call, you know, all day and not talk to anybody afterwards. Yeah, they don't want to live in some barn in the middle of the countryside. They actually want to be with people at a club and bars and, and having drinks and fun with friends. No, I think that that's, that's very interesting. And some have really missed it. And I know uh, just even seeing a couple of friends the other day, my wife and I, it was so lovely to meet with them in the garden and chat. We can't you know, quite have them in the house yet, but we were in the garden and we had a few drinks and it was a laugh and it was... It's almost like the end of a long, you know, winter is coming, but this is uh, depending on which part of the world you're in. Because um, I think the era of the pandemic is not over. As my scientist friends tell me, it's an endemic. It's going to always be with us. And if it's not this wave, there'll be other waves of some different viruses. So we need to be more flexible in the way we work and we live. No, I think that's very interesting. Also, the thing I loved in your book was you talked, if I remember, about like three big events a year, a couple of days where everybody comes together from all over the world and you're 1,100 people with perhaps with partners and that, that they, they, they have this human connection and the update and the briefings and the, and the brainstorming and a bit of fun, your band and things. It's, do you want to say a bit more about the events and why they're so important? Absolutely. And I share this story in the book, and this is probably the easiest way for me to explain why it's so important and, and valuable. Uh, so if you remember Hurricane Katrina, uh, you know, destroyed New Orleans. And uh, as I mentioned, we get together the whole company in the US three times a year. 
One of those is we just to get together to celebrate once a year. There is no business agenda. And this particular year after Katrina, we flew everybody down and their significant others. <clears throat> and we went and we worked on a community center that had been underwater for 30 days. <clears throat> and people would, so we had five bus loads of people and people would just drive by in their cars and get out and hug you and thank you for doing it. And then when we drove back to the hotel, we're all exhausted and dirty. And there was a commotion in front. I couldn't quite make out what was going on. And then I realized the entire staff of the hotel had come out and lined the entryway and they clapped as we walked back in to the hotel. And it always gives me chills to tell the story. That experience and what it does to build culture and energize you, I can't measure the ROI on that in a cost basis, but I know it's there. Yeah. And so the reason that we get together um, is because it you know, it, it re-energizes re everybody. Everybody loves that human contact and it solidifies those relationships that you've met over Zoom uh, and now you get to see them in person. So it's just really, really critical for any company that is going to be hybrid, that you have some sort of gathering strategy uh, to make sure you're getting together. Yeah, it's quite funny. I was uh, with a team event the other day and uh, the guys on this team, some of them had joined since the pandemic because it's now been about 14 months and one of them said, can I just ask, how tall are you all? Because I've, <laughs> I've, I've never seen some of you in the flesh. And then they started to describe, oh, I'm, five, I'm four foot nine and I'm five foot two. Oh, I always thought you were much bigger. You know, you always imagine everybody's much bigger than they really are. So that was just one of the hilarious things. And, and the other thing is about humor. And, and it's so important in this environment to have a good laugh and have some fun endorphins, dopamine, serotonin. It's, it's a really important part of leadership. I think there was an article about this recently about how it gives an uplift of about 20%. So centrics or centric consulting must be a, a really fun place to be. And are you finding this now people are reading the book, are you finding more applications for people to come and work with you now you've you understood this culture or have you always been quite popular? So I, I, it does give me, uh, it warms my heart. A couple of people have said, hey, I came and joined your company because I read your book and I was so uh, happy about your culture. Uh, what's So yes, a little bit. Uh, I think it's more, it's not necessarily the book, but people that you know value culture and having a great culture and the things in our value system, they find their way to us. Mm. And we try to hire for life. Um, and so we also spend 50% of our time interviewing on culture uh, because we, what happens is if you start to compromise and hire people that aren't a culture fit, you know, it's a slippery slope and then your, your culture starts to go away. And it's good for both of us because we want people that really value and get our culture to be here because it really um, um, builds on the culture. The thing that I will tell you though, it's certainly in the US, what the pandemic has caused is every company now needs to digitize, become kind of a digital first organization because as an example, consumers went to a digital channel and they're like, I love this, I'm not going back after the pandemic. So what we're seeing is this, um, there are not enough technology resources in the world to get the work done that all these companies need to do. And so we are seeing it's going to be, I don't know how long this is going to go on, but just a huge battle over technology resources in the world. And so you're seeing wage escalation and um, you know, it's, it's harder to hold on to people. Yeah, particularly people who are software engineers, I imagine. Correct. Yeah, no, uh, I must tell my, uh, my daughter's uh, 
fiance that he's in great demand. He, here he is quietly sitting in Nottingham, minding his own business on a small salary, whereas he actually could be working for someone else in San Francisco or New York on about four times the salary, but working from home. Um, yeah, it's, it's so very interesting. Let's talk about in your life, your proudest moment, your happiest moment or two, um, and your darkest moment in your work and your personal life and what you learned from them as a leader, Larry. Sure. So let's start with this darkest. It's easy. To, it comes to mind. So my, I have four sons, four boys. And when my son was around 11, he was very ill and he had a fever that wouldn't go away. And the doctors were in and out of doctors. They could not figure it out. And there's like, you know, we want you to go have an MRI. And so I was, my wife and I are in there when he's back in the room watching the screen <clears throat> and his, when they did it, his legs lit up and, you know, you are, sick to your stomach um, when you see this. And of course they're like, well, come back in a couple hours. We need to read this. And so, you know, go get some lunch and, you know, you can't eat. You're just, it, it, it was so terrifying. And so I'm an adventure travel. I've done, you know, I've driven on Daytona and NASCAR. I've trained with special ops guys. I've come face to face with grizzly bears in the wild. None of that um, compares to how afraid I was in that moment uh, for my son. And so, you know, happy ending, it turned out to be what's called osteomyelitis, which is, he had MRSA, which is a very scary um, infection in his bones, uh, but and he, they figured it out and it, you know, he was seven days in the hospital and they were able to treat it and he's fine wow. uh, today. But, you know, for me, what that reinforces the life lesson there is how precious life is and just how easy it is to forget that. And so slowing down, and uh, really, you know, every day and valuing those relationships, staying in the moment, don't put off all those big trips, no regrets. Uh, so for me today, there is almost nothing that bothers me or scares me other than, you know, the health of, of my family. And, and I try to keep that reminder every day. Yeah. Uh, so tell me, uh, being a military guy, of course, I'd be interested in this. Having done my airborne training and got my uh, parachute wings and my maroon berry, I'm really interested in special forces. So what was the, the, uh, the special ops guys you did some work with? Tell me that story. So I, I'm in this uh, group, this YPO group, and we've talked about oh, yeah. the president's organization. And so we have, uh, you know, we do different uh, types of training. And so I was in charge of organizing this and I'd heard about it and they gave me a number. They're like, call this number and ask for pops. I'm like, really? And so I call pops on this secret number and he's like, okay, I need you out in front of the building at 0500 on, you know, wear this. And I'm like, okay. And so he shows up in an armark van and we pile into this thing. And then they drive us out into the desert and they issue us M16s and they start yelling at us and we put on all the gear and it was intense. Uh, so the, you know, the first four hours you're learning to cover each other and shoot, you're shooting live ammo. Uh, kind of thing. And then you do <laughs> uh, in the afternoon, what's called a kill house. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what they do is you're going on multiple missions and they're teaching you how to, uh, they simulated, I think Iraq or something like that. So we were going in on these missions where we're clearing rooms or rescuing a hostage and we're using flash grenades and we're using these, you know, uh, M16s that shoot rubber pellets, basically it's incredibly intense. Uh, just simulating 
you know, what worlds, you just give you such an appreciation for the chaos of war and what our military do. I have such an incredible appreciation. And the thing that you will laugh or appreciate is I was terrible. Like on one of the missions, I was killed in the first five seconds. <laughs> so I don't think they want me in the special forces probably. No, it reminds me on the rifle range, I always was a, a appalling shot. Um, so thank God I had some good snipers in my team. I, I once, when I was assistant to the head of the army, uh, he went to visit the SAS in Hereford, which was the most amazing trip I've ever done. It was like a James Bond movie. We went onto this skyscraper in London and this special black helicopter, unmarked, came in, picked the tours up, flew us over to Hereford and dropped us off. The commanding officer was there, very relaxed. Uh, morning, sir, nice to see you. Uh, if you get in the car with Larry, he'll take you. And then we all had these seatbelts. We clipped in a five-point seatbelt and we were taken uh, it, down these tracks as if we were being attacked by terrorists and they had to do J turns and T turns and we were screeching around the place. I just so excited. And then he, then he goes, we're just going into one of the buildings. This is the situation there has been a hostage taking. And, and you watch these boys go in and the, the Range Rovers with ladders on the roof and guys on the roof. And they come to the edge of this and up they go the ladders through the top roof, flash guns and all this kind of stuff, room cleared, room cleared like you did. And then they said, uh, so if you and uh, your ADC will come in and said, uh, take a seat here. And, and we sat in this a killing room and he said, there are you know, five terrorist uh, targets in here uh, around you. It's really important you don't move. There will be live rounds fired in this, in this room shortly. Uh, just stay where you are and we will tap you on the shoulder when it's safe to move. So lights go out. <laughs> and then sort of all chaos comes on with smoke grenades and all sorts. And you can see these red beams moving around then. And it wasn't rubber bullets. They were really firing real bullets. And I could feel it pass very close to, because there was a terrorist target just behind where I was sitting. And sure enough, lights come on and they tap us on the shoulder and they turn around and have a look at the target. And they were just like so close to you. And these guys had just come in and cleared the room. Luckily they hadn't shot the head of the army. That was really, I think I was expendable, but, but they couldn't have shot him. And then they go, Rob Boss, do you want to go with this rifle? And, and, and so I went up and, you know, sure enough, and it was so easy to use and this, this red beam and you fired it. They were just the coolest of guys. And then, excitement of all excitement, we got a special briefing in the, in the, big, uh, in the big conference room. And there was just the general and myself. And for some unknown reason, he thought I shouldn't get too cocky because perhaps I was thinking this was, you know, I could get used to this. Um, and uh, so we were just about to get a briefing on the first Iraq war and what the SAS did. And he said, go to the back of the room. And I, so I had to go sit at the back. I could sit, I could listen, but I was just sent to the back of the room just to know my place. And, and then in came uh, my friend, David, who I've uh, interviewed on a podcast here and talked about the story he'd done um, and what he'd done. Someone else talked about um, a big battle with some IRA terrorists where they, they had successfully killed them all who had been attacking a police station. And then one of the guys who'd been injured in Iraq and had, he'd been tortured and all sorts. And he talked about it. Very brave man. It was just, it was really humbling and you realize what an amazing job some of these unsung heroes do uh and i i, I so admire them really anyway enough of reminiscing uh, reminiscing about my days you've got me going talking far too much larry uh forgive me for that piece of advice oh, no, i wish... enjoyed it thank you <laughs> a piece of advice Can i tell wish... you the, the the footnote is at the end pops gives me a card and he's like hey if you or your family are ever in trouble anywhere in the world, call this number and I will have a team there in 24 hours. Oh, that's the coolest thing. I that guess. Is, and he means it. He means it. He, he oh, will be there. Yeah, yeah. That is, that is lovely. That's such a nice story. Send me the card, you know. I don't need it. Um, <laughs> but um, 
thinking about the young Larry English when you were perhaps 16 to 18, or if it was Napoleon, he said, tell me what, uh, what the man or woman is doing when they're 21 and I'll tell you how their whole life will be, which I thought was quite an interesting Napoleonic view. But knowing what you know now, you've written books and you've, you've been to so many different firms that you've worked with, what bit of advice would you give your young self or to other young people today? One, one good bit of advice. Sure. And so, uh, you know, I have four boys and, and trying to raise them the, the right way. And so um, this is uh, this is coming up uh, right now, as, as a matter of fact. So a couple of things. What I've tried to teach my kids, and it's interesting, if you read people that have been on their deathbed and mm -hmm. their regrets, certainly one of them is they wish they would have taken more risk. And I, it took me a little while to learn that. I think I was a little reticent to take risk in that 18, you know, 16 to 18 to 21. And life is so short and it makes all the difference. And before I started my company, I looked at all of the um, founders of companies that had been successful. And the one common denominator was that they were all willing to take risk and position themselves to take risk. And so, you know, I'm trying to teach my kids uh, um, to, to, to do that. Yeah. So the other uh, thing that just on a, a very simple one that I noticed that my kids don't, they don't teach in college is the value of a network and really building a network. And so I'm really trying to encourage my kids uh, you know, there's there's some quotes that you know your uh, net worth is directly proportional to the the strength of your network, and there is uh, there's incredible truth to that. I think mm. uh, so. Uh, take risk regularly, build build your network, and I want my you know the, the, all the things that we've been talking about. It, you can be kind and you can be successful. So all of those those values, you don't have to compromise yourself and you're going to run in to situations where you're asked to and people will ask you to do that. Stay, stay true to who you are and you will be successful. Yeah, it's, it's lovely advice. I, I really completely condemn that. So Larry, we've done our own work on what makes inspiring leaders and uh, high performance and we developed the compass, the Inspiring Leadership Compass. And I just wanna go around the compass and see what resonates for you and what bits of advice you'd give to people as they listen to this. Uh, in a sort of uh, a bit of wisdom from you. So MQ is the top, the, the true north, what uh, your vision, not your, um, your values, your beliefs, your foundational values, the sort of principles you live your life by. Um, what, what, what are the top three that you tend to live by and what have you done when you let them slip? <clears throat> so we've, we've hit on uh, some, I'll, I'll add a, a few additional ones. Uh, so there's some, there's some quotes that I live by uh, that mm -hmm. I keep in front of me. And so uh, one of them is Southern Florida is filled with people that are 68 years old and they were going to do something big in their lives, but they waited until it's safe. Now it's safe and they're 68 years old and they live in Southern Florida. That's by James Michener. Mm. I try to always remember that because it's going so fast. And that's why I'm a planning maniac because it just moves, life moves so fast. I want to make sure I get those things done. Uh, there's another one that's, I'm a humanist, which means in part, I've tried to behave decently without expectations of rewards or punishment after I'm dead. And that's Kurt Vonnegut. And it's about being kind. Uh, the other one 
is we forget that there's, there's no hope and joy except in human relations, happiness. It's useless to seek it elsewhere than in the warmth of human relations. And that's uh, from the little, uh, the guy that wrote Little Prince, uh, Antoine Saint-Exupéry, I think. I can't say mm -hmm. it, my French is not very good. Uh, and then I, there's one from, uh, actually Robin Williams said in Night of the Museum too, the secret of life is to do things you love with the people you love. Mm. And so I try to keep those all in front of me uh, because they really help me guide how I think about life. Yeah, I, I do think that uh, Robin Williams one is so pertinent. Uh, do the things you love with the people you love. And it was just so sad that, you know, he got so depressed and into such a bad place that he took his own life. And I've had one or two leaders who've been under just such immense pressure. And I think there's more pressure than ever in this pandemic. And some are on breaking point or have lost their jobs or whatever, because it's just the pressure has been too much. And back to the military analogy, you know, people are now on their third six month tour of Iraq or Afghanistan without a break and without any rest and recuperation. And, and you're, seeing the, you're seeing the impact on people, you're seeing the cost. I don't know what your view is on that. Uh, well, terrible. Um, I, I am just, uh, I try to, I try to keep in front of me, um, everybody. And, um, it's just so easy to lose sight of what's really important and keep keeping that in front of you at all times and, and, um, living that way. Yeah, no, that's very true. And the second area, which goes on nicely from that, from your foundational values, and I love the quotes, I'm, I'm a great collector of quotes too, is what gives your life meaning and purpose, your, your journey, your dharma, your vocation, your calling. Uh, you know, why do you do what you do, Larry? So, gosh, uh, there's a couple of things that I would say. We are in this unique period in history uh, where technology is taking over the world. And this unique intersection of technology and business strategy is exactly what I, I, I started when I, my dad brought home a computer when I was 14 and I started playing with it. And it's something I've always loved. So I am fortunate to be in the middle of this amazing time in the history of the world. And it's exactly what I love to do. And that is where I like to spend my time. That's my, that's my business purpose. And that's what makes me happy. And so um, I love that I'm able to do that. And I think maybe, you know, we were talking about what's the topic when we get the CEOs together. I think that's probably one of the topic that, that, that junction of history and strategy and technology, this moment in history, you know, how are we going to maximize this opportunity? Um, thank you for that. Health quotient is the next one. Mental health, physical health, well-being. What do you do to keep yourself healthy physically, mentally, and emotionally? What 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 tips would you pass on to others that you live by? So my wife jokes with me that my self-care regimen takes four hours a day, and there's not enough time for her. <laughs> and there is some truth. I, when I I turned fifty a couple of years ago, and just wanted to make sure that I was doing all the things to prioritize my health, and so there's a long list and I'll give you a few of them. So every morning I journal, mm -hmm. um, I meditate, um, I make sure I lift weights and have cardio, uh, uh, the right diet, working with a dietitian, uh, sleep, 
Um, I worked with a functional health doctor, which was incredibly eye-opening to me uh, of uh, the depth that you can take that, that traditional medicine doesn't go that is possible today. And so, you know, putting all of that stuff out there on a regular basis keeps me uh, keeps me in the right state of mind and keeps me healthy. Yeah. And did, were we not talking about Peru? Have you not been to Machu Picchu and taken yes. uh, the, the, um, this crazy idea I hope to do one day of, of take these plant-based medicine and then sort of think about what... what oh, the ayahuasca. Them? Yes, the ayahuasca. Have you done that? You know, I've had a couple friends do it and they all got really ill. Oh, so really? I'm debating whether I want to do that. All right. Okay. That doesn't sound so good. I must uh, talk to you before I go and do it. Um, EQ uh, is the uh, the next one I want to touch on, um, which is you know rapport, listening, influence, emotional and social intelligence, which of course, as you and I discussed before, is core to this remote culture you talk about. How, how do you make sure in this office optional where we're not in the same office as your twenty years experience? How, how do you make sure people develop over over video and things like that that ability to read and pick up? these small micro signals that's going on? Great, great question. So one of the things that we do that we've had to learn is companies miss out on the stuff that happens in between meetings in an office. And so all of those things, when you're walking to the coffee maker or walking to the bathroom where you're building personal connection and rapport, they don't happen in a virtual world. And so you have to design them and build them into an organization. And there's all kinds of things that we do to, to help do that. And if you do those things, you can build the same deep, strong relationships. You might not tell how tall the person is, but you can build those deep relationships the same way you could if you saw them physically in person and then reinforce them like the, the examples that we talked about. So just, a, you know, just a few examples is one, we model, model vulnerability. Um, vulnerability is the shortcut to trust. And so when you're vulnerable with somebody, they're like, oh, I, this person has the same worries that I do. You develop trust faster. We ask people to share their whole self, bring their whole self to work. And that's their whole personality, who they are. Because once you understand who you're working with and what makes them tick and their personal love, life and what they're going through, you're, you're more connected as an example. And so we've had to you know, figure out how to build all of those things into a virtual company. And those are some of the tricks that are in the book that we talk about. Yeah, uh, time and again, I've seen when people talk about, for example, uh, Patrick Lencioni's book, The Motive, which is a very short two and a half hour audio um, with one group when they all talked about the motive of why they come to work. There were tears in the group. I mean, and, and a level of vulnerability uh, that meant there was immense trust just in this, the, the space of an hour that you couldn't buy, you couldn't get over years. It just happened. And that was virtually. That happened virtually. You don't have to, I've done it in rooms, but I've seen it also now work very well virtually. So there's, there's little that you can't do virtually. Yes, it's better when you're face-to-face -face and you do need to have the social interaction, but you can do it virtually. The next one uh, is CQ, uh, cultural intelligence quotient. It mixes in IQ, but it, it's mainly about this diversity, equality and inclusion and coping with people from different cultures and how you understand people who are different from you and how you learn about that. What's, what's your tip on this cultural intelligence question? Well, there's a couple of, so there's, you know, basic stuff. So 
you know, listening, connect, learning to listen, connecting on a, a personal level, listening with empathy, empathy and not judgment. Uh, what for us as an organization, we always thought that we were really inclusive. And then the, you know, in the US we had the George Floyd moment. I don't know if you mm -hmm. all that, that caused all the riots. Yep. Uh, it prompted this huge internal discussion and it was really interesting. Our black employees were like, we don't, we don't get to share the struggle that we've been on and we want to. And, and so it led to this, these town hall meetings that we had in each of our business units. And just like you were talking about before, where people shared their story um, of how they've been discriminated against. And this wasn't just black employees. This was, uh, you know, uh, gay and lesbians. This was all, all everything. And it was transformative for us as an organization. We just all bonded and, it, you know, um, and it's led to a whole um, work plan for us, an organization that we put in place to drive culture, a, a culture of diversity and inclusion in our organization. So out of that terrible event has become something very uh, good for us. That, that's so good to hear, Larry. And when you had the town, did you actually get people to meet in person or was it all virtual that they all met? It's all virtual. Wow. So a town hall virtually, with how many were on the call? It, it depends on the operating group size, you know, anywhere from 20 to 50 to 80, maybe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is yeah. hard to do in that group, but it was, uh, it was really remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that level of vulnerability because only the strong can be vulnerable is my great philosophical thought. And the ones who are the weakest often try and cover up and make it all look good. And, and there was a lovely question I often ask new CEOs I'm thinking of working with or leaders I'm thinking of working with. And I say to them, when was the last time you, you personally were dead wrong? And if the CEO goes, hmm, I think about that. That's really a hard one. Could have been 1978 or was it 84? Uh, really, I can't think of a time, Jonathan. Then you know there's a problem. But when they go, do you know what? I make mistakes frequently each day and I just have to have to admit it and go on that. And that, that leads to the next question. How quickly did you realize you're wrong and how quickly did you admit it and rectify it? And, and it's quite a problem for people if they're not in the right culture. Do you, do you, have you found this when you've not been in your own culture, but in other cultures where they, well, they don't admit I, I was part of the problem. So, uh, you know, I mentioned this YPO group, which is uh, you're in these smaller groups of, let's say, nine or 10 other CEOs. And they're all very smart and they call you on all of your shit. <laughs> and so for me, my, and it's a blind spot. They were like, you are not vulnerable. And I'm like, really? And so it, it started this big journey for me to think back to when, how I grew up. And as I, I think back, you know, we just, in my family, we didn't talk about emotions. Um, and so that always led to me to kind of bury those and uh, not be vulnerable. And what I found is when I started to, to do that and be more vulnerable, all the things that you talked about, people are like, I feel much closer to you now that you are sharing that with me. And what it does for a leadership team in a company is when you can all be honest, you don't know it, or I made this mistake, it takes it to another level of performance. You can move so much faster as an organization when you have that level of trust with each other, there's no game playing. You're just going to be really honest uh, and vulnerable. And so I, it's been a long journey for me, but I now see the power of it and it's huge. 
it's beautifully put there, Larry. And and I enjoyed reading uh, reading Stephen Covey Jr.'s book, The Speed of Trust. And he has a very simple equation: trust equals speed times cost. And when cost when trust is low, everything costs such a lot more, even litigation and lawyers. And everything takes so long. There's meetings before the meeting, and everybody's in every meeting, and the cost of the number of people in the meeting is a complete waste of time. When the trust is high, things happen very quickly. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll get to you. Just give me an update in a week's time. Yeah, fine, done. Uh, and and it just happens like that. And that's what I saw in some of the best military units that I were in. There was a real high level of trust in, in a high performing group. And therefore we could do a lot of things very quickly. And it was a real privilege to work in that group. Um, I couldn't agree more. And what I would add, and that's why it is the, really the first chapter in the book. And if you're going to have a remote company, trust is the key, trusting all of your employees that they're going to work when they need to and how they need to. Because what I see some organizations doing is they're installing software now where it monitors every second of, it takes screenshots of the, what the person is doing. And you know, you're, you're gonna have culture, but people are going to hate it uh, because people wanna be trusted. And yeah. we've so rarely had an issue over the last 20 years of working with thousands of people please, please uh, trust your people. It, it will be fine and you'll end up in, with a much stronger organization, a remote organization. Yeah, and, and this fits with Reed Hastings' book, um, No Rules Rules, which I was listening to recently, just almost finished it now. And uh, Reed talks about this, you know, no expense policy, no travel policy and, and no holiday policy. But you firstly got to hire very high quality. The talent density is very high. So you have less people, but you trust them much more. And, and then because you trust them and you've got good people, if anybody ever does break it, they're gone. Because you, you, you know, when the trust's gone, the person should go. And it's very hard to get it back when they've, when they've been given so much trust and they've abused it or they've stolen money or whatever it might be. And, and, and that they don't, with the transparency you talk about, they at Netflix, they say the reason this manager's gone is because this is what they did. And people, oh, can't you protect them? No, the others need to know uh, how it is. Um, so it's not for everybody, but I, I certainly find much more of a healthy culture. I don't know, have you read it and does that resonate in any way for you? I, I have not read it, but couldn't agree more. Yeah. And that's how we've run our business. And it's, you know, it just makes all the difference. Yeah, because you got to get with when you have no trust, you have all the policies. And we found with the FCA and various other organisations in the UK to stop people being dishonest in banking and ripping people off with credit back swaps and derivatives that are made up of complete phony stuff and it doesn't exist. That they then put loads of rules in, but people still find a way to try and break it. So if there isn't trust, I don't know, it, 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 it's a downward spiral. Um, yeah, so same thing. We have no, you know, we have no set vacation uh, policy. You take what you need. And it's just, it's never been an issue. Yeah. Because yeah. you have people that are, you know, they're motivated and they want to do great work and it works out fine. Yeah. And then the only thing that they did add, which I thought was a fair point, which I have seen, is when you have a no vacation policy, if the manager doesn't take vacation, it becomes a no vacation policy because no one else takes vacation because they go, Ah, oh, as I say, so you can just, you don't have to record it, but but the, what's the unwritten rule? How does it really, oh, he doesn't take any holiday, my boss. So, well, perhaps I can't take holiday too. So you actually, the, the 
the leaders have to almost take more holiday than they normally would do. So they go, oh, it's okay, you can take holiday. And, and you know, it's what do they call it, row, results only work environment that, you know, um, my old boss, and this was like 35 years ago when I was a, a chief of staff in the brigade, he said, Jonathan, work is an activity. It's not a time or a place, just get the work done. And, and it was uh, an, another lovely quote, which you'll like, it was Rommel. He said, there's, there's four types of leaders. There's uh, stupid and lazy leaders. There's uh, stupid and hardworking leaders. There's bright and, and hardworking leaders and there's bright and lazy leaders. He said, take the stupid and hardworking leaders and shoot them. Now this is a bit excessive, we can't do it these days because they'll take you miles in the wrong direction and they'll work very hard doing completely the wrong things and take the bright and lazy leaders and promote them to the highest rank because they'll get it done quickly and then they'll have time off with their family. So I just, I just thought, great, a great view by Rommel all those years ago. Um, so I, I've had to, you're exactly right. I've had to go talk to a number of leaders and say, I need you to take vacation. I need you to be a great example uh, because we want our leaders to, you're fresher if you have a better balanced life. So please yeah. go do that. Yeah. And um, some people it's harder than others. Um, but we try to, you're exactly right. You have to exemplify that from leadership. You definitely do. So um, we've got about 10 minutes. So quick sort of quick fire questions with just your, your sort of top tip, bit of advice, resilience uh, and adversity. What would be your sort of top tip about developing resilience? Hmm. I'm trying to think how I've developed resilience. You know, it's, so I'm going through this with my youngest son right now is I don't want to take away the struggle from them. Hmm. So, you know, as an example right now, he's always been the best player on a soccer team and he hasn't hit puberty and all the other kids have. And now he's the worst person on a soccer team because he's so small. And, you know, you could quit. That's exactly the wrong thing to do is because life is the journey is about the obstacles. And so, um, going through all those hard things, every hard thing that I've gone through, there's always led to some silver lining of the, the, the next best thing. So, you know, live, go through those struggles and get out of what you, what you can because it's going to make you stronger and better. Yeah. And there's that lovely book by my favorite author, Ryan Holiday, the Stoic book, The Obstacle is the Way. The, it, the very obstacle you've been given is the way and that you learn. And I've had a few challenges thrown at my family uh, in the last year. And I found that while it's been horrendous, I've also learned to do all the routines you're doing as well in your health and well-being, And that routine has helped me through these darkest parts of the night, uh, particularly mindfulness, yoga, weight training, uh, being near to your loved ones, my wife, Lee, and, 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 and my three daughters and, and son and, and my two brothers. Um, so that's really interesting. Brand, which is a favorite topic, brand, reputation, image, and impact. What bit of, uh, we can have a whole topic on this, as you know, Larry, and another day we will. But, but what would you talk about on, on developing people's brand and reputation? <laughs> Gosh, yeah, you're right. Uh, we could talk for a long time. So what, what was kind of interesting to me is so internally as a leader, somebody explained to me, they're like, your leadership style is a hands-off cheerleader. And I had never known that before, but I think it is right. So I try to let the person, I try to get out of the way, give them the context and people are smart. They're going to figure out how to get it done. 
and be there to support them uh, and, be, and be their big supporter. The, I've been on this accidental journey of external brand now uh, for myself, which is really talking about the future of work and remote. And it's, I'm at a crossroads where I try, I need to think about what the next steps if I wanna keep doing that are. Uh, uh, but the thing that I will tell you is the thing that makes me the happiest or the proudest is when I hear in the marketplace, the, hey, your company has a reputation of the nicest people and always doing the right thing. That makes me the most proud. Yeah, fantastic. And then on to the, the final part of the compass. Now we'll talk about executive teams, a book you recommend, and then your final top tip. Um, for the final part of the compass, it's legacy. So stewardship, legacy, leaving things better as the founder. What bit of wisdom would you leave and what would you like your legacy to be, Larry? Yeah, I debate this a lot. We're so ephemeral that um, in the grand scheme of things, I, I, you know, I, I don't worry too much. Uh, I think I'll be quickly forgotten. But uh, I, we set out to build a multi-generational company, which is the exact antithesis of most of what is done today. And it makes me excited that all the people that we've brought here um, that have this balance and appreciate the culture that this is hopefully going to live on beyond when I retire. That, that makes me really excited. And I hope it goes on, you know, has multiple generations. Having four boys, uh, making sure that I've raised them to be decent and kind human beings with the passion to go take on the world. And, um, you know, finally, just that I've, you know, everybody that I've come contact with, you know, I've, I've treated with love and laughter. Mm. That's nice. I like that. And then you've worked with so many different firms uh, in your company. What uh, is your experience about executive teams when you perhaps come across a toxic team and maybe one individual makes it toxic or is it the behavior or the culture makes it toxic and how you've seen that turn around into a high-performing team? What, what's been your experience of that and a bit of wisdom you'd give on executive teams from toxic, the turnaround to high-performing? So a couple of different angles. There's, if you have somebody that is very clearly doesn't match to the value system of everybody else, being um, quick to um, take that person out of the team is really important. And we've had a few um, where we finally figured out that their value system wasn't right and it, I, I would do it faster in the future. And we, tend to give people the benefit of the doubt in the long road. But if I see that situation, um, certainly. And then, you know, you, you mentioned Patrick Lencioni, uh, you know, five dysfunctions of a team and uh, uh, his other book, Getting Naked. There is a lot of wisdom in there, but it's when you have that, it's about getting that team together and building that personal connection and getting all of the issues out on the table um, and, doing it in a way that builds trust and resolves the issue. Once that, that team has gone through and they have those battle scars and they trust each other, then get out, you know, look out, they're gonna be tremendous. Yeah, that's, that's so true. And there's that lovely one about the keeper test. If this person in your team was thinking it was being poached away to another organization, would you fight hard to keep them? And if the answer is no, let them go. Why you got them in your team at all? 
in, in the first place. And if, if you can't fully trust them because there's a mismatch of values, as one leader said to me, he said, I help them find their happiness elsewhere. um okay um we you talked about getting naked we talked about a number of books between us um if you picked a favorite book on leadership neuroscience i know you read widely larry mental health well-being what what would what's a recent one that you recommend to people to to listen to or read as you know i'm dyslexic so i love to listen to audiobooks but what would you recommend so the there's a a couple of that I'll, i'll give you so one of them is around creativity mm-hmm. and there's one called uh, thinker toys that i have found it's it's almost like a workbook um that you can use about how to be creative and i found it to be amazingly helpful uh, lately i've been spending a lot of time on uh, meditation and, and mindfulness and so i find a lot of value in the book untethered soul and the power of now i think you would know those there's another one that's great that's out how to think like a monk uh, yes, which is yeah. a gentleman from the UK, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so those are great. And then uh, Sandwind Star. Jay, Jay Shetty, I think, is how to think that's, like that's exactly right. It's a fantastic book. Yeah, I, I love that. And a monk. Yeah. No, Untethered Soul. I haven't. I haven't read that one. Um, so I will have a listen. Great. So let's go into Larry the uh, the final uh, two minute top tip. If you just introduce yourself again, that would be great. Uh, say where you work and mention your book and then just give the top tip, which is probably to do with this whole idea of uh, office optional and virtual working. The thing that impresses me is your whole life is planned out there. You, you have like no one else I've ever met. You have the best plans I've ever come across, Larry. You have a plan for everything. I, I remember I I... The, the world is ending. Hang on. I'll call it Larry. What's the plan? <laughs> so, Larry, over to you. Your uh, your top tip. Hi, I'm Larry English, president of Centrix Consulting and author of Office Optional. My tip for all of you that are working on uh, figuring out if you're going to adopt remote work after this pandemic, let me give you three ideas. So one, the most important thing you can do is to trust your employees. They will take care of you and they can, you can trust them to work uh, great in a remote environment. The second thing is hybrid is going to win out. If there's any question of that, uh, don't don't question it now. We will all be working in a hybrid environment going forward. And the final point is because of hybrid, make sure you do hybrid by design instead of default. Uh, Installing Zoom is 1% of the problem. There are a lot of things that you need to do around policies and procedures uh, to get hybrid right. Brilliant. Larry, thank you very much for being on the Inspiring Leadership Show. Uh, I've really enjoyed our interactions. I know we'll stay in touch for some time to come, but really many thanks. And I know we'll really enjoy listening to this. Thank you for having me. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. 
And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.